Today, we'll be walking through Matthew 20, 17 through 34. And, um, you know, we've, we've, we've covered a lot of ground over the last couple of weeks, and we've talked about a lot of different things. But bottom line, we talked about the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And how it's no longer a worthy pursuit for us to go after position and power and prominence and prestige and pomp and circumstances that that's not the path for us as Christians. Uh, you've heard that to be great in the kingdom, we need to change our hearts and we need to become his children and uh, humble ourselves and be innocent and trusting. And you heard in the past that we have a father who loves the 99 but will chase after the one that is lost. The previous chapters told us that neither position nor power nor wealth can buy its way into heaven because God knows our hearts and he knows the idols that reside there. Pastor Ezra preached last week that comparing ourselves one to another is not the way to the kingdom for it is God alone who decides who gets blessed and how they get blessed. For he is the potter and we are only the clay. You see, he alone decides who gets into the kingdom and who doesn't. Not based on our works, but based on faith so that no man can boast. Here in this passage of today, Jesus is making his way to the cross. The cross that waits for him in Jerusalem. And he shares with his disciples again that the world's way is not the way of the kingdom. And that greatness has been redefined for the believer. You see, all of us inside of us have a need to feel special. We all want to be remembered for something. We all want to feel like we count for something. We all want to feel like we're worth something. And so we chase after the things of the world, thinking that's going to help build us up, thinking that's going to help us make me feel special. But at the end of the day, it's an empty promise. God's way is a different way. Today, we're going to look at three attributes of greatness in the kingdom. Today, we're going to look at sacrifice, suffering, and service as ways to be great in the kingdom of God. And hopefully, as we look at these attributes in the scripture, we can get further clarity about what God's way really looks like. And what he requires us to be great in his kingdom. And how his way is truly different than man's way. Today, we're going to search our hearts. To see if we really want to be great in the kingdom of God. Let us pray. God, I come before you right now, O oh Lord that you would fill this temple with your spirit, O oh God. That we would feel your holy presence, O oh Lord. That you, God, would speak to our hearts on this day, O oh Lord. To draw us nearer unto you, O oh God. To be more like you, O oh God. To run and reflect you to the world, O oh God. Lord, I ask you right now, God, to hide your servant behind the cross, God. That everything that I say and do, God, reflects only you, O oh Lord. Have your way in us, O oh God. Draw us close to you, O oh Lord. And speak to our hearts on this day, O oh God, that we walk out of here different than the way we came in, Lord. Let us have here ears to hear, God. 
and open hearts, O oh Lord. Use me as a willing vessel, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start by looking at verse 17 through 19. And uh, just so you know, my wife told me to take my time. So we'll be here a little bit longer than the morning service. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. You see, what Jesus was telling his disciples was that I know what waits for me in Jerusalem. But I'm willing to sacrifice myself for you anyway. Jesus was telling them that I am the son of God. The one that was spoken of in Isaiah 53. The one that is going to be despised and rejected by man. The one that's going to be pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was telling them that I'm the one that's going to be crushed for our iniquities. But I'm going to Jerusalem anyway. This is the third time that Jesus had told them what was going to happen to him. But he said in this verse, let me be more specific. He said, they're going to mock me. Which means they're going to put a crown of thorns on my head until I bleed. He says, they're going to whip me and flog me and tear the flesh from my back. And they're going to nail me to the cross until the weight of my body causes me to suffocate. And when they're finished with me, they're going to pierce me in this side. Where the blood and the water will flow. But I'm willing to go to Jerusalem for you anyway. That you might have life and have life more abundantly. And that you might live with me in eternity. Yes, Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Son of the living God. He is God wrapped in flesh, but he found it not beneath him to sacrifice his life for us as a, on the cross. To sacrifice his life as the Lamb of God for undeserving sinners like me and you. John 15, 13 says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friend. But the question is, what are we willing to to lay down for the kingdom? What are we willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of God? You see, sacrifice is part of the cross that we must carry if we truly follow Christ. And if we desire to be great in the kingdom, we must sacrifice. Sacrifice may not mean a physical death, but are we willing to die to self? Are we willing to die for self Die for the benefit of other people. Is self willing to be put down for the benefit of our families? Will we put self aside for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we willing to put ourselves aside for the strangers on the street? Or is it always about my needs? Is it always about my schedule? Is it always about the burdens that I carry or my desires? Do I always have to be the one that's right, always in charge, and always in the spotlight? Do I have to be the smartest one in the room? I was that person. 
came from a long line of personal debaters, thinking we were the smartest ones in the room. Family would spend nights, hours, debating ridiculous points just to see who would come out on head until we were so tired we'd just fall asleep at the table. When my wife first, when we first got married, she couldn't understand how we could sit around and debate such ridiculous points, figuring out who's going to be in charge, who's going to be the smartest one. God had to strip me of that. He had to take my ego and crush it, let me know that I was no smarter than anyone else, that what I had was a gift from him. Everything that I had was a gift from him. But yes, that was a learning point for me. So I don't participate in those debates anymore. My aunt is here with me. She understands what I'm talking about. But the question is, how far will you go for someone undeserving before your self-preservation kicks in? You see, when you get hurt by somebody, when somebody does the worst thing to you, and they ask you for forgiveness, can you do it 70 times 7? Or is the death of their pain going to stop you from saying, I forgive you? But that's the sacrifice that's required of us to let go of unforgiveness. The rich ruler that we spoke about wouldn't let go of his wealth. Why? Because it was an idol in his life. Is the love of money keeping you from being great in the kingdom of God or will you let it go? Are you holding on to relationships that the Holy Spirit has told you to let it go? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. To be great in the kingdom may require you to walk away from some of those relationships, to sacrifice some of those friendships. God has a plan for our greatness. But we may not want to see the cost or pay the cost. He has a plan for our greatness, but we may see the sacrifice as just too much to pay. But this is what God's word says in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You see, if you go, God comes to you and says, make a sacrifice, trust that he has a plan for you, a hope for you. A victory for you when you say yes I trust you Lord Jesus said in verse 19 now on the third day he would be raised from the dead yes he became a sacrifice for us but God raised him up with all power and authority and death was defeated by his sacrifice on the cross and when we make that sweet smelling righteous sacrifice for God it may feel like death. It may look like death. But God said, no, this is just a temporary state. Trust and believe that he's going to raise you up again. Trust and believe that you're going to walk in victory again. Trust and believe that you will live again. Have faith that God will bless you because of your sacrifice, just as he did for Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, 5 through 9, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, and that name is Jesus. Greatness, you see, is required. Sacrifice is required to be great in the kingdom of God. Let us look at verse 20 through 23. Then the mother of sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, will you drink my cup? You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You see, Jesus had just told the disciples that he was going to be flogged and crucified, nailed to the cross, and the next thing that comes out of their mouth is, well, where am I going to sit? Where is my special place of honor, Jesus? They totally ignored what Christ was about to go through. They totally ignored what he might have been feeling at the time. Their own selfish desires was all that mattered. Clearly, they still saw Jesus' kingdom as something temporal, a worldly kingdom with all the trappings. Surely the mother wanted the best for her sons. And there's nothing wrong with a mother wanting the best for her children. But defining the best is the problem. It's pushing the pursuit of academic success the best when your child really wants to be an artist. It's forcing your child to participate in sports, to put it on a college application when they hate the game you're forcing them to play. Or making them go to college when they really want to go to trade school and to become a mechanic. You see, we find ourselves in pursuit of worldly success and forget about what we need to do for God. The question is, what are we defining for our children as great success? I can look at it. I value education. I know what I did, we did for our boys. I know how we pushed them to get into those AP classes. But I missed the mark. I didn't push them to serve and to suffer and sacrifice for God. Praise God now, they both love the Lord. Clearly, John and James were present during this conversation and may have put their mother up to it so that they wouldn't come off as ambitious with power and, and hungry for prestige in the eyes of the other disciples. But you see, God knows our hearts. And we can put on a mask for those around us, but God truly knows our every thought. He knows when we covet what the world has to offer. He knows when we're jealous of somebody else. He knows when we're envious of somebody else. And he knows when we want and think we deserve the seat of honor and glory. 
but he also has an open arms. He said, just be honest with me. Just tell me what you need. And I'll help you focus on the kingdom. The disciples say they wanted seats of honor and authority in the new kingdom, but they had no clue of what they were asking for or the cost that, it would, that they would have to pay. So Jesus challenged them, do you know what you're asking? Can you, th- can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? And how casual did they respond? Yes, we're able. You see, they did not understand what was in that cup. They didn't understand that the cup was filled with suffering and sorrow. They didn't understand that it was filled with persecution and chastisement, false accusations and betrayal. They didn't understand that the weight of the sin of the world was in that cup. And casually they said, yes, we'll drink it. This is the same cup that Jesus spoke of in the Garden of Gethsemane when two times he asked his father to take the cup from him. Why? Because Jesus anguished over drinking from that cup. Jesus knew what was in that cup. Yet, praise be to God, he finally said yes to the Father. I'll drink it, Father, because that's where we will. Where would we be if Jesus had refused to drink? If he refused to submit to the Father's will? Jesus told John and James, Yes, you will drink from the cup. And James surely did die a martyr's death by the sword. And John ended up in exile. Our suffering, our persecution is required to be great in the kingdom of God. The question is, are we willing to drink from the cup? The exclusivity of Christ and Christ alone and his divine nature has put us at odds against the world who believe that whatever God works for you, works for you. Are we willing to drink all of the contents of the cup? So when the world is watching and the pressure's on, when we take a stand for Jesus, when we proclaim the gospel in our schools, in our workplace, around our friends, or will we be selective in who we tell about Jesus? Or do we have a secret love for Christ that nobody around us knows about? Will you tell your neighbors that Jesus is the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through him? Or do we fear that we'll be rejected and despised for our belief? Will we be willing to call out injustice when you see it, though it may not be directed directly at you? For many of us, we have only taken a small sip of this cup because the bitterness of even a small sip has created doubt, fear, and unwillingness to swallow our pride, swallow our dignity, swallow our self-worth. But what we don't realize or trust is that at the bottom of the cup, is where we will find true victory in Christ Jesus. That not believing that when we've drunk to the whole cup, we'll experience the true greatness in the kingdom of God. We have to drink the whole cup to see the bottom, to know that there's glory in Christ Jesus, that he is our sustainer no matter what we go through in life. If we're willing to drink the cup, Christ is there with us. Matthew tells us in 5.10, The blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what portion of the cup are you struggling with? 
If you want greatness, ask God. And he's faithful to answer us and show us the way. Show us how to move past our fear. Show us how to move past our worry. That last little bit of the cup that we refuse to drink because we don't know how things are going to turn out. Suffering is required for greatness in the kingdom. Looking at verse 24 through 28, And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the, of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the other disciples were indignant, but why? Why? Because their hearts were hard. Why? Because their hearts were in the wrong place. How dare John and James ask for preference? We deserve the special treatment just like they do. What have they done to deserve top honors? The other disciples mixed the mark just like John and James. They too wanted worldly glory, worldly honor, and worldly recognition. But the gracious Jesus, in his love, does not rebuke the disciples and their mother. He knew they didn't understand the greatness defined for believers. So he gathered them together and he taught them. You see, brothers and sisters, sometimes when other members of the body don't fully grasp the understanding of God's ways, it's okay to respond in grace. It's okay to lead them along the way and not rebuke them because they have an unclear understanding of what the gospel is really saying. So Jesus proceeds to teach them that we are not to lead as the world leads. The worldly rulers lord over their people. They exercise authority over their people. They strive to be served. They strive to be lifted up to great positions and positions of power and prestige. They strive to be recognized by the world as somebody important. Our religious leaders today sometimes reflect the same attitude, expecting the special parking spot out front, expecting the special spot at the table when there's an event, expecting that the meals be served to them first, expecting that somebody will carry their bags for them and only granting access to the very important givers in the church. Even in the private sector, some leaders idolize the big corner office, the big compensation plans, the black MX card, the company car, all while strategically figuring out how to cut staff and make more demands. But Jesus said, it shall not be so among you. Whoever wants to be great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, not to be served. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Even though the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And he served the world by giving his life as a ransom for many. A ransom for a slave. Slaves such as us, who are slaves to sin, who are now, by the grace of God, 
freed from that bondage. Regardless of the leadership position God puts you in, we are called to be servant leaders, servants in our workplace, servants in our homes, service in leaderships in our church. Fathers, are you Lord and ruler or are you a servant? Husbands, Christ tells us in Ephesians to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus served the church. Are we serving our wives well or do we lord over them with dominance and fear? All that we do, we should do for God's glory, not seeking our own. Philippians 2, 3 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We are to be gracious stewards and servants of the people that God has entrusted to us. And Jesus displayed this best in John 15, when, at, when in the Last Supper, before the bread was broken, he bent down, he took a towel, and he washed the servants, washed the disciples' feet. And he told them, if you don't do the same thing for each other, then you don't have any part in me. Riverside, would you really look at the person next to you and say, I'm willing to wash your feet. Jesus. <laughs> yes, Lord. That's the God we serve. That's the God we serve. The King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Prince of Peace, God wrapped in the flesh, willing to get down on his knees and wash the disciples' feet. That was the role of a slave. That's the example that he left for us. Servanthood is required to be great in the kingdom. Servanthood in the workplace. What does that look like for you that are in charge of people? I know what it looked like for me. When I came into the workplace, I was the boss. You did it my way or the highway. That's what it was until God spoke to me. That's not my way. You're a servant of the people I've entrusted to you. I had a supervisor who was just like me, and I loved it. She marched to the orders, delivered the message. But in the seven years she worked for me, she just left two weeks ago. She said, Dave, I remember when we started together, and I remember how we used to do, and I knew exactly what she was talking about, because she was rough too. And uh, she said, but you taught me something different about how to supervise people. And I said, thank you, Lord. I'm going to miss her, you know. But that's God. Nobody but God. I, I knew what I was. And God touched my heart and spoke to me. He said, that's not, the, that's not the way to lead people. So looking at the verse 29 through 34, and how does Jesus reflect what it means to be a servant? And as he went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting on the, by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, 
son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately recovered their sight, and they followed him. You see, Jesus was on a mission to the cross. He had a plan and a purpose, and he knew where he was going. He had his own set of problems. He had a date with destiny, and that date was going to mean his death. He knew what God had asked him to do, but yet he stopped in the middle of his journey and called out to those that cried out to him. And he felt pity on them, and he healed them. You see, Jesus had every right to say, I'm busy right now. He had every right to say, I got a lot on me right now. He had every right to say, you know what, I'm on a mission for God. But instead, he stopped. He stopped in the middle of his journey, and he heard their cry. He didn't ignore them. He set aside his own needs to meet the needs of the blind men. You see, God is calling us to be great in his kingdom by being servants. But are we willing to put aside our own needs to answer the cries of those who are desperate? He's calling us right now to put aside our technology and not to disengage from the disenfranchised. He's saying, don't be glued to your cell phones and to your laptops and to your iPhones and to your iPads and to your TVs. Make room for those that are crying out to you. He's calling and he's asking us to walk in the spirit of God. That we would be willing and available to actually hear the cries of those that are in need. You see, you don't have to walk very far. Right here, Riverside people are crying out for help. The question is, can we hear them? Right now, our schedules are so packed, we don't have space or time for anything but our own to-do list. And people don't really have time to interact with each other anymore. Walk into any public place, any public gathering, and everyone is in worship. You get on the train, and everyone is in worship. Heads are down, eyes are down, and hands are up. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. We don't have space for each other. Heaven forbid you actually look at someone in the face, smile and engage them in conversation about the good news. Maybe we fear the fact if we look hard enough and we look into their eyes that we may see the despair and that our hearts will be moved to do something about it. That we will be moved out of our comfort zone to say, use me, Lord. Maybe we're afraid to make that eye contact and actually let somebody see into our souls. Maybe next time when we go to a restaurant, and the waiter or the waitress comes over, maybe we become the server as opposed to the served. People are hurting, and we are the ones that Christ is calling to be great in his kingdom, great by sacrificing the way Christ did on the cross 
Great by suffering, by being willing to drink from the cup. Great by serving, by making ourselves available for the needy and not being angry when we get interrupted by somebody that's crying out for help. Jesus heard our cry. He knew we were in despair, but he answered our cry. We said, Lord, have mercy on us. And Jesus reached out and he grabbed our hands. That's why we're sitting here today saying, thank you, Lord. He cried out. When we cried out, God drew us near to him. He gave us hope. He gave us forgiveness. And he gave us victory over death. He gave us the gift of eternal life. So will we strive to be great in the kingdom of God? Will we be used by Jesus to do for others what Jesus did for us? Will we sacrifice, suffer, and serve to be great in the kingdom of God? That is our calling. That's what Christ has asked us to do. To step out on faith and be used for his glory. To be a light unto this dying world. To say yes to Jesus. It may feel like it's going to cost you something, but be sure that you will be raised up from the dead, that you will have new life, that God will bless you abundantly for your willingness to say yes. Sacrifice, suffer, and serve. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen.